Wonderful. What about the existence of evil? And um, I remember saying, I think, at the start of the course, you know, where do we begin in our exploration of, of Alpha? And I often wonder whether this talk, coming as it does week eight, I think we are now, but I often wonder whether this talk wouldn't be the best place to start, simply because uh, God, this isn't a God, people struggle with uh, an image, an idea, an understanding of God, of the, the ability to sort of relate to God. And, and Jesus seems so long ago, sort of figure of history 2,000 years ago. Uh, and the Holy Spirit, goodness knows what we're meant to understand by, by him. But evil, well, I mean, we only have to turn on our telly screens, don't we? We only have to read the newspapers to look at the news. And it seems that, that kind of evil in, in, in all sorts of different ways and forms is all about us. Um, we may well have been a, a victim of crime ourselves here. Uh, and so experienced people kind of taking and robbing from us, despoiling us in some way. Um, or, or just the news. I mean, I, I, I'll always have fresh illustrations for this. These two girls who've been dug up, you know, teenage girls found in this garden in, in Margate. I mean, you know, what lies behind that? Or, or this, it's, it strikes me that you know, months and months and months now, but someone, somewhere, knows about Maddie McCann. And, and, and that you know the anguish and the angst. You must have some idea. You must know the anguish or the angst that you're causing parents and family and friends and so on. What is it that's propelling that, that's, that's driving the secrecy? Whatever has happened to that poor little girl. So, evil. Does evil exist? Well, well, absolutely. And uh, the first thing I want to say, I mean, that's the sort of second question really, the second point. Uh, but what I want to say is that the church has always acknowledged that. Traditionally, the, the Anglican church has kind of had three strands to its being. Um, that's scripture, what the Bible says, tradition, what, what has, what has uh, always been believed, and, and reason, the use of reason. And if we look at those three legs of the Anglican stool, as it were, we'll understand that in all three, three ways they acknowledge and attempt to wrestle with the problem, the existence of evil. Um, scripture talks of evil and, and interestingly often talks about evil in a kind of personal way. The Hebrew word for uh, the devil is, is uh, uh, we, we derive the word Satan. Satan is from the Hebrew for evil, the devil. And um, Satan appears to Job in the book of Job um, in the form of a kind of person. It's a personal uh, wrestle, personal challenge that, that Satan, the devil, puts before Job. Um, and uh, it's clear too in the New Testament that, that Jesus in his teaching and the New Testament's understanding of evil was, was a kind of a personally focused force. Peter talks of the devil like a, like a roaring lion, a hungry lion, prowling around, seeing who he may devour. Um, uh, so the very sort of images for this sort of personification of, of, of evil. And think of um, uh, evil in the form of the devil. It's, it's, it's helpful perhaps to try and dispense of the kind of um, image of a little sort of six or seven year old on, on Halloween with little sort of red horns and a little tripod and, uh, you know, tail with a little sort of pitchfork tail or something. Um, I, I, guess, I guess the devil 
is most obvious to us, this personification of evil, when we, we see it kind of manifesting out of human beings. So, so we, might, we, might, we might have sort of understood the existence of the devil today in someone like Mara Hindley or, or Dr. Shipman. Um, people who the tabloid headlines scream as being pure evil or full of evil. There's a sense in which we can almost see the devil there. And uh, that's backed up by a, a kind of personification of evil in scripture. So that's scripture. And traditionally, the church has always understood the existence of evil to be a very real force to be reckoned with. And um, you see that in, the, in some of the most ancient baptism services, the, the forms of liturgy, which continue to today. So those of uh, you who've, who've uh, been to a baptism service here, um, or you've had your children baptised here, um, some of the questions that I ask, key creedal questions, do you turn to Christ? Return to Christ. Do you renounce evil? In turning to Christ, there's a kind of turning away from evil and all that evil represents. So scripture, tradition, uh, and thirdly, reason. If, if evil isn't something serious to be reckoned with, then there are, if it's really just sort of fanciful, as perhaps Dawkins would have us believe nowadays, then, then there are one or two quite hard questions to ask. I mean, to, to answer. Like the ones I've, I've just posed at the start of this talk. And, and for example, some of the sort of more sinister addictions. What, what, what is the power that holds people in their addictions. How come is it, it is that in this hall, every week, over a hundred people meet um, in three separate Alcoholics Anonymous groups? People longing to be free from an addictive grip of alcoholism. Now, now what holds them there against their better judgments, against their better reason? Um, child molesters and uh, child abusers, uh, people addicted to, to, to greed, or self-harming or abuse, who in their lighter moments, more rational moments, don't want to be held there. <coughs> Reason suggests that there must be some kind of malevolent force that goes over and beyond our, our own powers and abilities. Manifests itself from time to time. I was reading the uh, uh, story, if you like, the, the life story of someone who did Alpha, and was describing the moment when he's a lawyer, a chap called Bruce Strether, uh, and he was describing the moment when he, if you like, the light came on for him in Alpha, when he, he kind of twigged. It wasn't in the first few weeks. He was wrestling and arguing and didn't really go with any of it until the talk on, on the, the, the subject of evil. And he writes this. During that evening, it occurred to me that I really did believe that there was a malevolent force in which you could stick pins in dolls to make people fall over. I believed that Ouija boards and tarot cards weren't just mumbo-jumbo. And I remember thinking, if you genuinely believe there is a malevolent force, a bad force, it is logical that there is also a benevolent spiritual force, a good force as well. And after that... And after what you've heard in the previous six or seven weeks about Jesus, is it too large a bound to believe that Jesus was who he said he was? That's what Bruce Strether asks. And from that moment on, my attitude in the group went from questioning to enthusiastic participation. He came at it, as I've suggested, from the existence of evil, and therefore, I suppose there must be 
to, to, to counter that an existence of good by definition and uh, he began to discover the goodness of God through that so yes Lewis actually in this, uh, in this book uh, the Screwtape Letters he says right in the, in the, in the beginning in the preface There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devil. One is to disbelieve in his existence and the other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in him. And he himself, the devil, is equally pleased by both errors and hails a materialist or a magician with the same delight. Uh, So to uh, disbelieve in his existence or to have an excessive belief, if you like, an, uh, an unhealthy interest, both of them are harmful. So we want to take the subject seriously, but not too seriously, I guess, is, uh, is what we want to conclude from tonight. But, but what I've said so far, the kind of, the, just the reason, the scriptural proof, the tradition, I guess makes sort of the, the idea of evil out there. It's, it's sort of out there in the world. Um, there are some bad places in, in London and in this country and, and further afield. But here, in, in this nice hall, we had a lovely, we just had a lovely meal together and we're all friends. I mean, is, is evil really an issue for us? I mean, are we, are we evil? Is that something that's sort of really going to sort of um, contaminate us? And I guess it comes back to this question that we've, um, it, it, we've asked ourselves from time to time on Alpha, the kind of stark question of the Bible when you pair it and peel it all back the question is this in relation to God are you alive or dead it's stark and quite blunt but that's the question are you alive to him or dead to him and I wonder if you would answer to the, to the form well yeah I, I, I feel that in some way I'm alive to him God's life in me by his spirit then I wonder whether you've become aware of of being alive and, if you like, awake to a kind of another way of seeing the world, another way of living, another way of being, God's way, that goes beyond the pure material and physical, that there's a spiritual element to the world in which we live. Um, we might describe that as the kingdom of God, the, the, the sphere or realm in this world, of, of God's influence and power. And certainly the New Testament writers understood that, uh, and understood that in, in waking up or becoming alive to the spiritual realm, that became very real in each of us, in our consciousness, in our awareness. Let's look at our first reference to do with this. It's um, page 1112, and it's Paul's letter to the Ephesian church. page 1112 towards the end of his letter to the Ephesians and Paul writes this chapter 6 and verse 10 finally he says be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power put on the full armour of God he's using this metaphor here so that you could take your stand against the devil's schemes now here's, here's the key thing he says for our struggle is not against flesh and blood but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. 
In other words, he's acknowledging, isn't he, that, that, that life sometimes can be a struggle. It, it is, a, it just seems hard, <laughs> difficult sometimes. Testing. And that that test and that struggle is, is not to be seen purely, it's sort of, oh, my boss at work, or my children, or my wife, or my husband, or, or my neighbour, or whatever it might be. It, it's, it's not the kind of flesh and blood, the people, but it's kind of what lies behind and beyond them and around them. It's against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And the picture, if you like, is that in Christ, God has kind of in Christ plucked us out of death and out of darkness and into life and light. But, but in living for God with his life and in his light, we're aware that around us we are surrounded by death and darkness. And so as we wake up to God, we wake up to that struggle, death versus life, light versus darkness. We become that much more attuned to it and aware of it. So again, in the baptism liturgy, I mean, these little people, I hold them in my arms and I'm kind of preparing them for, for battle in life spiritual battle we in fact every one of us we all say together as a congregation fight valiantly under the banner of Christ against sin the world and the devil and continue his faithful soldier and servant all the days of your life so it's sort of um, it's a little bit more than you know drink cups of coffee at the back of church and have a nice chat it's just that if we're going to live for God wide awake to him we'll be aware, we'll wake up to and be attuned to the fact that there's a, there's a struggle, an unseen struggle going on in the world in which we live. Well, I want to look uh, briefly now, if I can, at um, the, the, the devil's schemes, if you like. His overall aim and then his tactics or schemes. If we have not this passive force but actually a kind of focused and personalised and intentioned uh, enemy to the life of God in us. Um, let me start by asking what the devil's overall aim is. And essentially it is to undermine and eventually to destroy the life of God in us. So insofar as we feel and know the life of God in us by his spirit, we, we will, in a sense, feel and experience the devil's attack on us. It's not, in one sense, to be taken personally. It's not as if, in one sense, the devil is against us. He's attacking the life of God in us. We'll feel it personally because we're getting to know God personally. But the devil's aim is to undermine and eventually destroy God's life in us. Jesus came that we may have life in all its fullness. And the devil wants to rob us of that, to destroy that in us. So just as um, there may have been occasions perhaps during these Alpha evenings, or perhaps if you've been in a church meeting, or perhaps a house group, or around Christians, and, and uh, just aware of God and his spirit, and I don't know whether you're, you, you sort of experience, perhaps over Alpha you, you've experienced a kind of, a sort of surplus and surfeit of, of, of good, of good desires. I actually want to live this way. I, I want to 
praise God, like we were just saying there, to, to shout for joy. It's, it's almost as if, yeah, I, I want to do that. I feel a lightness. I want to bless other people. And yet at other times, maybe we, we become aware of a kind of surplus or surfeit of, of, of evil, in a sense. I, 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 you know, I, that, that, that momentary, overwhelming temptation to, to use my words, not as a tool of blessing, but as a weapon to cut someone down. Uh, and we, 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 you know, we become aware of that sense of, of losing that element of the battle. Well, that's the enemy at work. That's the devil at work. Let's look a little bit at his tactics. And I want to focus particularly on this tactic of temptation. I've put down here four D's uh, as to how the devil uses temptation as a tactic to destroy the life of God in us. Very often he'll highlight and pinpoint desire in us. I'm thinking now of the the Genesis story, and it, it may help actually to turn back to that, to this account in Genesis 3, when human beings, Adam and Eve, first encounter evil in the form of a serpent or a snake. God has placed men and women in uh, Genesis chapter 3, page 5. God has placed men and women in, the, in this paradise, this, this Eden, and has basically said, I'd love you to live. And, and the devil comes, the serpent comes in the form of a snake and, and, and goes for that desire, which is a good desire. It says, yeah, you want to live? Why don't you eat, well, of all the fruit, why don't you eat that fruit of the tree that you were forbidden to eat? Yeah, go for it. You know, have your fill, eat. That's what God said, didn't he? And temptation will often focus around, will often begin and point and focus at desire in us. The desire to live. We want to live. And the question is, will we live for God? And so often the temptation starts with, well, what about looking at alternative sources of life? Instead of, instead of living for God, why don't you live for pleasure? Why don't you live for wealth and accumulation? Why don't you live for status? Build yourself up so that others can look at you. Why don't you live for uh, your work uh, so that you can get affirmation through, through the things that you do and achieve? Good desires, but beginning to be twisted so that they serve us rather than worship and honour God. That's how the devil starts with temptation. Once um, he's pinpointed desire, he'll do these next two things. He'll sow doubt. He'll sow doubt. Uh, he says to Adam and Eve um, here, uh, verse 1, he said to the woman, did God really say? Did God really say? That's what the devil will do. He'll tempt us into doubting what God has set out for our lives and, and, and said is good for our lives. And uh, uh, Oswald Chambers is a, um, a kind of famous and spiritual Christian writer. He, has, uh, he said that essentially the heart of sin, all sin, all separation from God, is when we begin to doubt his goodness. When we begin to doubt that God is really good, that God really wants the best for us. He really has our, our best intentions at his heart. When we doubt that is when we begin to slide 
into the path of sin. So he sows doubt. Did God really say? Doubt for us. Does God really love me? Am I really so significant to him? Has he made me the way he's made me for a reason? Surely I look at someone like Harry or or, or Giles and uh, Clemmy. I look at them I think that I I should be like them. Look at at the way they are. They seem to be so accomplished. I'm not sure that I'm really that special. I'm a second or third or fourth or fifth class person or fifth class Christian. I'm sure that God doesn't really love me as much as, as the others. Linked to that doubt is deception. He says to um, Adam and Eve here, you will not, verse 4, you will not certainly die, the snake said to the woman, if they eat the fruit, you won't die. That's, that's a lie. That's pure deception. God had promised that they would, but by way of curse. If they eat the fruit that was forbidden to them, they would die. And the devil deceives. Because you won't die. And that's what he does with us. He'll begin to convince us and deceive us into thinking that, you know, this Christian thing, it can get a bit intense. I would just, yeah, just back off a bit. Take your foot off the gas. This alpha stuff, uh, this church stuff, this Bible stuff, it's a bit intense, a little bit weird. Just, you'll be alright if you just follow the crowd. Look, everyone else, they're okay, aren't they? In fact, they're doing quite well, aren't they, these guys who don't go to church? Think of all the shopping you can do on a Sunday. You know, just just fall in line. Fall in line. It, It won't matter. No harm will come to you. Is a lie. Is a lie. I think of people, I think sometimes I, you know, meet them quite often, sometimes in the church, sometimes out of the church, and engaging with them, I, f- I find myself thinking, you know, who is deceiving you? I can think of someone who is stunningly beautiful, young lady. She is stunningly beautiful. She is convinced she's not. I, I, I can't believe how attractive she is. But she is convinced that she's not. And uh, there's all sorts of eating disorders and all sorts of things that are plaguing her life. How can you not see? <laughs> who's deceiving you? Who's, who's sown that lie so that you doubt who you are and live in the deception? Ruining your life, really. Robbing yourself of peace and of joy. The joy that God intended you to have as a woman loved by him. So, um, doubt and deception. And eventually, well, I've, I've touched onto it really, disobedience. We, we begin to walk out of the ways of God. I, I'm not lovely. I am ugly. I'm not worthy. I'm all these things that God has never intended us to believe of ourselves. God can't love me. He's not good. He's so distant. I can't get to know him. Lies. And we begin to live in that. And living in a lie is to live in disobedience from the goodness and the rightness of God. And all of that has been the work of temptation. Sowing the seed that finds the fruition and eventually as we begin to walk in disobedience we find ourselves, as it were, living in sin. I don't mean that in the kind of popular uh, way of uh, living out of of wedlock. I I just mean in, in any way in which we base our decisions and base our life outside of the conscious will of God. 
Now, it's important for me to say, in the context of uh, temptation, that everyone gets tempted. Jesus was tempted. When he lived here on earth, it's vital that we understand that temptation comes to all people. It came to Jesus. The devil tempted Jesus. Do you remember at the end, uh, uh, when he spent that time in the wilderness? So Jesus was tempted. Temptation is not the same as sin. Jesus has set us an example and a model. He was able to withstand temptation and to tell the devil to go away in no uncertain terms. So temptation is not sin. And one way to view temptation, when, not if, but when it comes, when we can, when we can sense the enemy, the doubt sower, the deceiver, whispering, his lies into our heads. One thing we can do is to recognize it as temptation straight away and to see it as an opportunity to grow Christ-likeness in us. To resist the devil. And as the Bible says, he will flee from you. And to know ourselves strengthened, if you like, our will strengthened as we recognize temptation and withstood it rather than fallen into it. Satan, the devil, wants to use temptation to destroy us. But God allows temptation in order to develop us so that we can grow in Christ-like character. If you like, temptation simply provides a choice. Will I go with this or not? And in choosing not to go with the temptation that we recognize comes from the devil strengthens the life of God in us. Now, this all sounds quite sort of heavy <laughs> and I, I, don't, I don't mean it to and I want to back that up with um, the truth of where we are in Christ just turn back again to um, uh, the New Testament and to Paul's letter to the Colossians I'm not sure it's on this sheet um, uh, page 1117 1117 Um, Paul is kind of uh, describing a prayer that he prays for this church in Colossians. And and so it starts in verse 9, really, of chapter 1. He sees here, and then I'll cut down to, to the end of the paragraph. He says, For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we've not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives. And he goes on. Uh, and, and, and talks about what's happened to them, the journey that they've made. And so verse 12, uh, giving joyful thanks to the Father who's qualified you to share in the inheritance of his people in the kingdom of light, for he's rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Do you see the, the, the kind of, um, another metaphor there, not death and life, but this time darkness and light. He's, he's brought us into the kingdom of light and rescued us from the dominion of darkness. And that's where we stand. We've, we've been rescued. And we stand on the solid rock. We stand in the sure light of God's salvation. That, that transfer, that rescue took place at the cross. Do you remember the, the, the great exchange? Here we are weighed down by, by the death that, is, that comes from sin. And, and, and God in Christ has, has laid that 
death, if you like, on Christ, we've been rescued from this death, this penalty. And so now where my hands, you look, in the shadow and in the darkness, now we live and walk and exist in the light. That's the transfer that's taken place. It, it has happened. Historical fact, the cross of Jesus Christ. So that's where we stand positionally if we put our trust in what God has done through Jesus and ask him to fill us with his spirit. Look at the table on, uh, under verse 5 just to flesh out where we stand in relation to evil and to the devil. No longer, the left-hand side is where we've been rescued from. No mon- longer... Uh, in the dominion of darkness we, we live in the kingdom of light Satan is no longer our boss as it were it's Jesus he's our rescuer so we no longer have to put up with and, and get weighed down by sin and guilt we can experience forgiveness and peace we're no longer slaves to sin we've been bought out of slavery and adopted as servants of God as sons of God as friends of Jesus Heirs of God, Paul says. No longer weighed down by the, 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 the kind of fear of death because we have God's life, his everlasting and eternal life living in us. No longer doomed for destruction, but saved for uh, eternal salvation. That's the position that we are now in. So how come, given that we're on the winning side, how come that evil is so prevalent? And how come that we feel temptation? I mean, we know when we're here, we actually quite enjoy it. I mean, the the food's not bad, is it? And, you know, the coffee's all right, and the chocolates. And uh, I, I, I quite like the conversation that we have, and I quite like the people around the table. So what is it that makes me so sluggish to come to Alpha? Why is it I think, oh, why sometimes I think, oh, I, I, I'm not sure I want to go. Why is there suddenly a myriad of things to do? Um, shopping lists and presents to wrap and all sorts of other things. We were talking about some of the activities that uh, fill our lives. And suddenly they all seem to be so important at about tea time on Thursday. The sort of real existence of temptation uh, the devil wanting to lure us into evil and uh, the, the explanation I think is this that whilst God in Christ defeated the devil on the cross he's not yet a completely vanquished foe and the best analogy that I've come across that explains that is, is uh, towards the end of the second world war when the allies effectively secured victory after D-Day. But D-Day, I think in 1944, uh, did not herald the complete end of all fighting and all warfare. That was only, the the Second World War only formally ended, officially ended on VE Day. Indeed, I'm told that there were more lives lost in battles between D-Day and VE Day the sort of uh, last quarter of the Second World War. So although victory had been assured to the Allies, it was not yet complete, and there were still people who lost their lives, there were still battles that needed to be fought, even though the war had been won. And we stand in in that period of time, if you like, between the cross of Christ, which is D-Day, and his second coming, and the consummation of the whole of the, the universe under Christ, Uh, that day is yet to come 
when our salvation will be made complete and we will be made complete and evil will be done away with forever. But we're not there yet. We live in what theologians call the, the sort of the not yet of God's kingdom. It, it's not yet here completely, although it is here to stay. And we live in those in-between times when we know that the victory is assured, the war is won, but there are still battles to fight. It's vital as Christians, though, if we're going to fight those battles and wage that war against evil, it's vital that we understand the position that we have. When I used to teach, um, I understood how the devil felt in in this sort of phase. Because uh, we used to go around trying to root out the smokers at school when they were pupils. Smoking was um, against the rules. And so when you were on break duty or whatever, we'd sort of have this sort of game around the bike sheds and around the back of the change rooms always, rooting out all the smokers. And they used to love it. When when, uh, it came to the end of the year and they left school, and at the start of the next term, they used to love it. We'd be on duty at the end of school. And they they used to just come and sort of saunter down. They'd left by now. But they'd saunter back down the drive to where we were on duty, seeing the, the kids go out. And uh, in full view of us, you know, they just reach to the back pocket, get out some fags, get out a fag like that and go, all right, Mr. Stilwell. <laughs> and then put a fag in like that and then just get the lighter. But most ostentatiously, though. <laughs> and there was a real sort of, what are you going to do about it? And of course, the thing was, there was nothing, you know, they were old enough to smoke now, they could buy fags if they wanted to do that. They weren't under school jurisdiction. I had absolutely no power. I was, I was robbed of my power. Just, um, have you still got Colossians open? Just, uh, let's read how Paul describes what Christ did on the cross. And it fits in with that impotence that uh, I felt as a teacher. Chapter 2. Um... And verse 13, again, here's another transfer metaphor. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, that's a reference to the kind of Jewish custom, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having cancelled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He's taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Satan is defeated. The devil is defeated. Disarmed, robbed. He has no power. We can, as it were, blow spiritual smoke rings in his face. That's the position that we have as we seek to live for him. So finally, how do we defend ourselves? Well, it's to put on the armour of God. And that uh, is kind of set out, this image, this metaphor, rich metaphor of how we can defend ourselves as Christians in the battle against the devil. It's in Ephesians chapter 6. And you might want to look at it as a small group in just a few moments' time. Uh, And secondly, how can we attack? Two principal things. One is prayer. To pray. To be in direct line, online with God. So that we are aware of him and full of him and aware of his presence. It will mean that we are that much more attuned to the whispers and the lies of the enemy. We can recognise the devil's voice. We can recognise temptation and run away. So prayer, someone said, Satan trembles when he sees the weakest Christian on his knees. The power of prayer 
in rendering the devil impotent. And secondly, finally, we can take action. In, in recognising temptation, we can nip the devil's schemes in the bud. And, and one tip here is, is don't try and fight temptation and the thought of temptation head on. Uh, re-channel it. If you, if you focus on a thought, you strengthen it. But if you can re-channel it, take the thought and, and lead it to the cross. Bring it to Jesus. Just take the thought and introduce it to the Lord. And watch that thought, if it's out of God's will, just evaporate and disappear as we bring it into the, the presence and the person of Jesus. Rechannel a thought. And to that end, it's really helpful to maybe have a, a, a sentence or a verse or a phrase from Scripture memorized. Maybe two or three in your head that you can kind of quote. I don't know if you're familiar, but when Jesus was tempted by the devil, every time he quoted Scripture, he, he said, It is written. It is written. It is written. So maybe just to have that, that thing, if, if you feel the power of temptation reigning against you, to say, you have been disarmed and you were made a spectacle of on the cross. Go figure. And the power of temptation is broken as we remind the devil of his fate at Jesus' cross, his death, his crucifixion for us. And finally, it's to remember that ultimately Satan is defeated. Let me just read you right at the end of the Bible this, this uh, revelation, this picture that John sees at the end of time. He sees uh, a new heaven and a new earth. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, I'm making everything new. Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. And just before that, there's been this graphic image of the devil being thrown into the sort of lake of sulfur. He's destroyed forever. All evil and everything associated with it swallowed up and disappears in the new heaven, the new earth, that will live and last and reign forever. So evil is real now, but it will not always exist. And if we can learn to withstand temptation, we can grow in our Christian character, withstand the devil, and eventually, ultimately, reign and live with God forever. It's an exciting picture. But there's plenty to discuss right now, I'm sure. So there's tea and coffee and refreshment, and then uh, into our small groups.